Hello friends and welcome to the 5 by your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews and a proud member of the Inside Voices Network. In this episode, Sarah explores a haunted mansion in Betrayal Legacy. Christy goes on the quest for El Dorado, I build a civilization in Gentis, and Calvin siphons off the last drops of black gold and peak oil. But first, Ruth searches for Cryptid. Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here. And you know what? I love deduction games, even though I'm terrible at them. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about social deduction, when bluffing and finding traitors is the norm in games like The Resistance. But I'm talking about deductive logic problems in the form of games. Games that have players trying to piece together the clues to determine some unknown information. Basically, I'm talking about games like CG's Alchemist and Osprey Games' 2018 release Cryptid, which is the game I'm actually going to talk about today. Now, Osprey did send me a copy of this 3-5 player game designed by Hal Duncan and Ruth Fevers. But honestly, after a lot of play and a lot of time, I still can't get over how clever the whole thing is, and I'm so happy to have a copy. Encrypted, players are researchers trying to figure out the location of a cryptid habitat. The particular creature being sought is never specified, so if you're someone who wants to hunt for Bigfoot, then sure, you're looking for Bigfoot, while maybe the next group is looking for a bunyip. Each player only has one piece of information about where the cryptid lives, and when all of these clues are put together, only one spot on the map is left as a viable answer. But of course, everyone at the table wants to be the one person to find the right spot. So throughout the game, players are attempting to figure out what everyone else knows without being too obvious about what they know. Players can't give false information, so the key is to give vague enough hints with your searches while somehow managing to get clear information out of everybody else. Player turns are simple. You can either ask one specific player about one specific spot, or you can search for the cryptid. On the former type of turn, you simply indicate a hex on the map and ask the player if the cryptid might live there. The player then places a cube of their color on the spot to say no, or a disc of their color to indicate that the spot is possibly the cryptid's location. Anytime in the game that you make someone place a cube eliminating a spot, you also have to place a cube somewhere else to mark somewhere you know the cryptid can't be. So you'll want to carefully consider the information you give in return for getting an answer to your question. When you use your turn to search, on the other hand, you place one of your discs on a location that you think could be the answer, and then you go around the table checking in with everybody else. Each player will place either a disc or a cube down. The minute a cube is placed, then the search ends, and no one else answers, and then you place a cube somewhere else as mentioned before. But if you get around the table and everybody placed a disc on that spot, well you just won. In order to generate the map and the clues for a game, Cryptid uses a set of cards divided into two difficulty levels. One side of the card will show you how to create the map from six individual boards and which reference structures to add to it. The final map will have a variety of terrains and animal habitats that can and will be referenced by clues. Things like, the cryptid is within a space of water. The other side of the clue card tells you which books to use for your player count. Each player takes one of the indicated clue booklets and references the number indicated by the card to find out what they actually know. The backs of these clue books also provide a really useful reference with all possible clue types and all the symbols used in the game, letting you better figure out what's going on. 
It all works beautifully, and I can't imagine the amount of work that went into creating such an elegant system with so many map and clue sets right in the box. But if you don't want to use the cards, well, there's a website for that. I haven't used Osprey's website for Cryptid, but you can choose to leave the deck of the cards in the box and have it set up the puzzle and even provide you with a game tutorial if needed, which is a really nice way for them to add extra puzzles over and above the ones that come in the game. As yet another point in its favor, Cryptid is illustrated by one of my favorite artists, Quan Chai Moria, whose work can be seen in many previously 5 by covered games, including Favelas, Dinosaur Island, and Kadama the Tree Spirits. The map pieces that make up the board are vividly colored, and he's done a great job distinguishing each terrain with both color and pattern. Quan Chai also illustrated some wonderful cryptids who appear in the role and clue books as well as in the box. There's sea monsters, there's various other creatures. Unfortunately, while the art is wonderful, the player pieces themselves, while nice and chunky, do have some oddly similar colors, meaning that if we're playing at a lower count, we specifically leave some in the box to avoid confusion. We've also had more than one game where we've run out of cubes for at least one player, requiring some sort of substitution. So just know that there are a couple of issues when it comes to production. This is a game where note-taking is encouraged for anyone who feels like it, where you'll feel you know nothing for half the game before things start to fall beautifully into place. It's a game you want to return to in an effort to do better, provided you're the sort of player who loves puzzles and figuring out answers. I've played Cryptid so many times and never figured out everybody's clues with surety, but the satisfaction of knowing even some of the information out there is hard to beat, especially when you then use that to extrapolate just enough for a correct guess, which I've managed to do, well, once. Ever. Cryptid is a game for specific groups of people. It's stinky and tough and very abstract in its deduction. I would definitely recommend trying it first if you're on the fence, but for me, this is a game I'll be keeping and keeping trying to get people to play with me. Give it a shot and be sure to let me know your favorite cryptid or your favorite deduction game. When I'm not listening to the Cryptid Keeper podcast, you can find me on Twitter at Ruth. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. I'm not a fan of most horror games. Shock value, gore for the sake of gore, doesn't appeal to me. But I love Betrayal at House on the Hill, the 2004 one versus many horror-themed game from Avalon Hill that lets players create stories with the lurid, exuberant camp of a classic Hammer film. I'm in a game group that plays a lot of Betrayal and loves legacy games, and when a legacy version of Betrayal was announced, we were all in. Betrayal Legacy was designed by Rob Davio, Noah Cohen, J.R. Honeycutt, Ryan Miller, Brian Neff, and Andrew Veen, and published in November 2018 by Avalon Hill. Because this is a legacy game, this review will be spoiler-free. I won't discuss anything you wouldn't know the first time you open the box. I will talk about the game in general terms, including mechanisms you'd expect from having played the original Betrayal at House on the Hill. If you've played original Betrayal, you'll find Betrayal Legacy as familiar as an old ghost story. Each game begins as a co-op, with players exploring a haunted house. At some point, something happens to trigger the haunt, and once the haunt begins, no two games are the same. Sometimes it's still co-op, but most often it becomes one, the traitor, versus many, the heroes. Each side has its own goal needed to win the game, with items or creatures that help or hinder that goal. The legacy part of Betrayal Legacy manifests in a sense of history. You play a group of, not people, but families, who come back generation after generation to explore a house that shifts and grows and gains new secrets because of the actions of your ancestors. 
Each game takes place a decade or two after the one before. You can play the same character, older but probably not wiser, if she survived. If not, you pick a new name and play her daughter, niece, nephew, a new relation. Whenever a character dies in the house, a ghost sticker is added to that tile. And there are items and abilities later on that depend on the ghosts. An item card that is central to one game will be added to the deck and become just another item from then on. We loved naming these items and delighted every time we drew them again in later games. Look, it's Uncle Malachi's evil nail clippers. Yay, Uncle Malachi sliced up the town with his evil nail clippers. Those were good times. Now, Betrayal at House on the Hill has its problems, and none of them are completely resolved in Betrayal Legacy. Games can be uneven, unbalanced in favor of one side or the other. Rules are often unclear or confusing in edge cases, which is especially difficult for the trader who's on their own and can't ask for help figuring out a rule without giving away key information. And the game is extremely luck-based, with most actions depending on a dice roll. The first Legacy game I ever played was Pandemic Legacy, and it was one of the most strategic gaming experiences I've ever had. My group spent hours discussing every move and every upgrade, and would email constantly between games, mulling over what might be coming next and how to meet the challenge. Betrayal Legacy is nothing like that. It's a game of dice chucking. Usually the strategy is no more subtle than figure out who your strongest enemy is and try to kill them. And there's really nothing to plan or prepare for between games. But I never minded this, or wanted Betrayal Legacy to be something it's not. Because just like original Betrayal at House on the Hill, where Betrayal Legacy really shines is creating epic experiences. Stories that feel as vivid as the scary monster movies you watched between your fingers as a kid, and even now, decades later, still feel creeped out by in the dark of night. Because of the continuity, the family history from game to game, Betrayal Legacy excels at this. There's one Betrayal Legacy game I want to tell you about. Now, I don't like being the traitor. I find it stressful, isolating, you don't get that camaraderie of solving a puzzle together, and if I'm honest, I'm usually not very good at being the traitor. But this time I was the traitor, and a hidden traitor at that. And this time, everything went right. I had everyone fooled, only one person suspected me at all. There was a task the heroes had to do to win the game, and I convinced them all that I should be the only one capable of carrying out the final step of that task. And I convinced them that until we were ready for that final step, I should just wait away from everyone else while they did all the work. And they thought it was their idea. There was only one guy who was a real threat. He didn't like the idea of only one person being able to win it for the heroes. He insisted that both of us should be able to do it. I tried to throw suspicion on him, but it wasn't really working. So I waited until he decided to join me away from all the others. Then I revealed myself as the traitor, summoned a big bad that was very big and very bad, and killed him in one shot. Then it was easy. The big bad and I just picked off the rest. I have never had a game like that before in my life, and I maybe never will again. But you know, I always thought being the one in a one versus many game sucked. I didn't get why anyone wanted that role. And now I do, because of Betrayal Legacy. Years from now, every time we share stories about the most memorable games we've ever played, that's one of the ones I'll talk about. And that's Betrayal Legacy. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not collecting evil nail clippers, I'm not. That was a made-up example. There are no evil nail clippers in the game. You can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Deck building is ubiquitous in board gaming. Whether it forms a game all on its own or exists with other mechanisms as part of a larger game. In games that feature deck building as the main piece, 
the scoring is often obscured. In Dominion, for example, players buy cards that are worth points. Technically, this information is trackable, but most players are going to concentrate on their own strategy, and they're just going to have a general sense of who seems to be doing well. In Valley of the Kings, you entomb cards in order to score them, removing them from your deck and making the scoring even more opaque. The quest for Eldorado, on the other hand, features deck building as its primary mechanism, but instead of scoring points with your cards, you use them to travel across different types of terrain in a race to the fabled Eldorado. It has a modular board made up of tiles covered in hexes of various types, including jungle, desert, and water. The setup instructions provide several board designs of different difficulty levels, giving the game some decent replayability. As you move your explorer meeple across the board, you can see your position relative to other players and even block them, so the progress you're making is more visually evident and appealing. On your turn, you use your hand of cards to move your meeple onto adjacent terrain hexes that match your cards and or buy a new card. As with other deck building games, buying cards generally gets you more powerful versions of cards you already have, or cards with special effects such as drawing more cards or calling your deck. You can spend money cards as their full value and other terrain cards as half a coin per card. On the other hand, your terrain cards are usually better spent on moving, and your money cards match the desert terrain type for purposes of movement. So it's a balancing act between improving your deck and running your engine by progressing in the race. These decisions become even richer in the two-player game, in which you have to get both of your meeples to Eldorado in order to win the game. So you have twice the positioning options to consider. The terrain hexes are arranged in ways that create interesting decisions as you play. Routes that are more direct typically have higher value hexes on them that require better cards. For example, a hex might require a jungle card that's a 2 or a 3 instead of just 1. So you can take the long way around, but you'll be spending more cards and more time to do it. As for the other player counts, 4-player is going to give you the most blocking opportunities, but the majority of my games have been 3-player and that works just fine as well. Any deck building game is going to have a little bit of that multiplayer solitaire feel to it, but I feel like the blocking and even just the existence of the board in general does a lot to make it feel more interactive and more fulfilling. It's a great hybrid of a card game and a board game. Okay, so the quest for Eldorado is a race. Does it have a runaway leader problem? Each new tile has a barrier that a leading player must remove in the same manner as moving on to a tile. You have to play a matching card. At the end, number of removed barriers serves as a tiebreaker. The barriers are a great way to slow down the leader a bit while not being so onerous to remove that players are discouraged from being in the lead. I think they generally work as intended. However, if players have a wide gap in skill level, or if the leader has good luck in their card draws in addition to making good decisions, there are times when the barriers are not really enough. It's just going to depend on your group. It's definitely possible to get the feeling that you're stuck in last and there isn't a whole lot you can do. But turns are quick, and this is one game that doesn't overstay its welcome. Here are a couple things to know if you're thinking about picking up a copy. The quest for Eldorado is a big table hog. By the time you arrange all the tiles and cards and get everyone seated, it really does require a full-size table. I think this is a nice change of pace from other deck-building games that are primarily cards and small tokens, 
but it's something to keep in mind if your playing space is limited. Also, the cards are mini euro size, which in my opinion is just too small. Even though Eldorado is already sprawling, any deck building game deserves poker size cards. Fortunately, a new edition with larger cards was announced earlier this year as the designer, Reiner Knizia, is in the process of bringing the Quest for Eldorado to additional international markets. The current edition of the Quest for Eldorado in North American and European markets is published by Ravensburger, and the art is by Franz Vowinkel and Vincent Dutre. If you want to dig deeper into Eldorado, it has a caves variant in which you can collect bonus tiles that will help you on your expedition. There's also an expansion for the Ravensburger edition called Heroes and Hexes. Thanks for listening. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at D6CMarie. Gentis. Or is it Hentes? I didn't take Latin in high school, but living in Southern California, I know a little Spanglish, so I pronounce it Hentes which means people. And since Hentes is about civilization, that makes sense to me. But after reading a BGG thread about the proper pronunciation, it seems like more people prefer Gentis, so for this review, I'll go with that. Gentis is a midweight action selection Euro game centered around the city-states that emerged in the eastern Mediterranean during the first millennium BC. Published in 2017 by Tasty Menstrual Games and re-released via Kickstarter in a deluxified edition in 2019, Gentis was designed by Stefan Risthaus with art from Harald Leski and Adam P. McIver. I'm basing my review on the Deluxified Edition, but the gameplay is the same in both versions. In Gentis, you build your civilization through three ages, with each age consisting of two rounds. On your turn, select one action tile from the main board, paying the cost and placing the tile and the hourglass token, or tokens, onto your player board. The hourglass token is the heart of Gentis, and I'll get back to this in a bit. As its name implies, Gentis is about the people. Merchants, nobles, scholars, soldiers, priests, and artisans are all integral parts of your population, and all of them contribute to its progress. The five main actions are increase your population by using the philosopher action, gain buildings via civilization cards by taking the scribe action, constructing those buildings via the chronicler action, building cities and your hometowns through the navigator action, and gaining coins by taking the tax collector action. Each player takes one action per turn, filling up the time tracks on their player board with action tiles and hourglasses. When all players have run out of spaces on their time tracks, the round ends and cleanup begins, with bonuses for civilization cards and cities given. After six rounds, tally up your victory points and the player with the most is the winner. Gentis wasn't on my radar when the Deluxified Edition hit Kickstarter last year. I knew of Stefan Risshaus, but I hadn't played his masterpiece Arkwright. After watching a preview video of Gentis, it seemed like my type of game. The components look stellar, and I was intrigued by the time mechanism. Every action requires you to take an hourglass, representing the time to make advances in science, technology, and other facets of your city-state. After paying the coin cost for an action tile, you place it on the time track on your player board. You start the game with six empty spaces, which means you can take six actions in the first round, right? Wrong. For every action, you must take one or more hourglass tokens and place them in the next available space on your time track. With every action tile and hourglass token you place, you're losing those spaces for more actions and hourglasses. It always fills up faster than you want, and every round you're scrambling to make the most of your remaining spaces. Since there are several tiles available for each action, you probably won't be denied a chance to perform that action. But, not all action tiles are created equally. There are tiles that cost fewer coins, and other tiles cost no coins at all, but you'll take more hourglasses. 
There are two main ways to work around this time constraint. First, in addition to the six open time track slots, you also have five locked slots. One will be unlocked at the end of each age. Certain civilization cards will unlock slots as well. Pay the cost and meet the population requirements on the card, and you'll immediately open up a slot. The second way to work around the time constraint is through your hometowns. After you've placed a hometown through the navigator action, you may later activate its abilities. Most hometowns give you an ongoing virtual action tile, such as the scribe action. You still pay the coin cost and place the required hourglasses on your track, but you're saving yourself from having to place that action tile on your track. Likewise, some civilization cards give you similar virtual action tiles. What's really interesting about this mechanism is that you aren't required to put one hourglass per space. You may put two hourglasses into a space, thus keeping a slot open for your next action. However, during the cleanup phase, when you return all action tiles to the main board, you're also removing one hourglass per space, and if you have two in a space, then you only remove one and the other one slides down, thus blocking a space in your upcoming round. This decision drives most of Gentis. Do I do a bunch of actions this round and leave myself fewer actions next round, or vice versa? Another engaging part of Gentis is its population mechanism, where you gain the people that improve your burgeoning city-state. On your player board, there are three tracks for the six types of people. Whenever you gain a population, move its meeple up the track. Each track contains two types of people placed on opposite ends. For example, soldiers and merchants are on the same track. Soldiers go left to right, while merchants go right to left. If they meet in the middle and you train another soldier, then you'll move it one space right, which means your merchant also moves right, thus losing a merchant in the process. It's an interesting push and pull that makes for a neat balancing act. Since all of the civilization cards have population costs, you're most efficient when cards require similar populations. Of course, not all of these cards will be available to you. Gentis is all about adapting to the current state of the board. Tied into the population mechanism is the training market. Whenever someone takes the philosopher action, they move the appropriate meeple to the right of the training market, so if you paid one coin to train a merchant, it'll move back to the four coin slot, making it more expensive for the next player. This ever-changing market demands your attention since you want to train your workers at the lowest cost. There are also free actions based on the cities you've placed on the board, and various achievement bonuses. Like a well-oiled engine, everything in Gentis runs smoothly. There's a lot to love about Gentis, and there's plenty to think about in terms of the timing and cost of your actions, but it's not a deep brain burn, just a rock-solid game from start to finish. No matter how you pronounce it, Gentis deserves a spot in your game library. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Thanks for listening. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. When I was a younger and more desperate copywriter, a client once asked me to do copy for a product that we both kind of knew was a bit of a scam. My rationale for taking the job was that if I didn't do it, someone else would do it and then they would get paid instead of me. It's not a great rationalization, but like I said, I was younger and more desperate. In the end, the client never paid me. Lesson learned. Peak Oil is a Euro game about slick people in slick suits doing slick things that may or may not have horrible after effects. But if you don't do them, there's no guarantee that your opponents won't. I mean, on the one hand, exploiting oil fields is bad, drilling for more oil is bad, increasing the reliance on hydrocarbons is bad, but using the profits to invest in renewable energy is good, and that's what this game has you doing. You must whitewash scandals sometimes, yeah? Not necessarily great ethically. Rerouting pirates? Okay, good. Prey on your competitors? Yeah, bad. I mean, the game never forces you to do these unethical things. 
You just have no assurance whatsoever that the other players aren't going to do them. Peak Oil positions players as energy conglomerates desperately transitioning to renewables in the face of, well, peak oil. It's a slippery slope to the bottom line as you race to outmaneuver your corporate opponents. Jet your agents around the planet to secure lucrative drilling contracts, negotiate investments in renewable energy startups, hire new headhunters, or, you know, simply drill oil. But the more that you drill from the game's various oil fields, the less of it there is for everyone else, including yourself, as the planet rapidly runs out of oil. In a spot of incredible optimism on the part of the game designers, the only way for energy companies to get around this inevitable decline is to bet on which renewable energy companies to invest in, from wave energy to personalized nuclear reactors. At the start of the game, you're given a portfolio of companies that you're secretly trying to invest into, but this doesn't necessarily influence your strategy 100%, as you can pivot to the other types of industries as required. Getting in on the ground floor with these investments is cheaper and lets you further influence the success of those startups. But sometimes it's better to have a wave of ready cash to ride the rising tide that your opponents have created by investing in a different company, and that will land you loads of points at the end of the game. And watching what is happening on the renewables market is the key to victory in peak oil. While of course maintaining enough ready cash to fend off the latest PR crisis or hire new specialists for their powerful abilities. The core gameplay itself is simple area majority. You place your agents, here represented by pawns, to contest actions with majority winning in the action spaces. Taking an action removes all of your pawns and opens up opportunities for other players. So if, for example, I place all my pawns in the drill action and you place fewer pawns than me, then I get to drill before you do, but when I vacate the space, then you will have the greatest majority there. You can headhunt specialists ranging from spin doctors to assassins, pirate negotiators to local guides, and all of this while you have to keep an eye on which renewables to keep investing into, whether to push your own or maybe jump ship to another portfolio. And you have to keep an eye on the current oil supply lest it run out completely and you run out of cash, because the only way to get money in this game is to spend oil. And then maybe you'll even win. Maybe you'll have the best renewables portfolio of them all, and you won't come off feeling too greasy at the end of it. But that's your ethical conundrum, not mine. Designed by Tobias Gorbant and Heiko Gunther, with art by Heiko Gunther, published by Two Tomatoes Games, Peak Oil is a very beautiful, fast-playing Euro game with social and mechanical bite. Fans of area control mechanisms, slick aesthetics, and the mad rush to rapidly exploit the planet's dwindling resources in order to convert them to renewables should drill right to the source. This game, for me, is a winning bet, an exploration of crisis and profit done in incredible style. And for a similar game, but about marketing, you can check out New Corp Order, also from Two Tomatoes Games. I haven't played New Corp Order, but if it's anything like Peak Oil and its look at ethical conundrums in its host industry, it's gonna be great. I'm Calvin Wong from the Insight Voices sister podcast, Ding and Dent, and you have been listening to The Five By. You've been listening to The Five By. Follow us on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fivebygames. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or head over to our website, fivebygames.com. From all of us at The Five By, thanks for listening. The Five By is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at insidevoicesnetwork.com.